you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number 1. Colossians chapter number 1. And I want to speak to you today on a prayer that we should all pray. A prayer that we should all pray. In the coming weeks, I really feel as though that one of the most important ingredients for us as a church and where we are is a focusing in on prayer. Now, I believe over the month of December, I think we'll look at, at some of the nativity scenes, some things surrounding the birth of our Lord as we look forward to that celebration. And, but coming off of that, I think we're going to spend some time in the subject of prayer and around the subject of prayer. Uh, because I believe it is one of the most vital things where we are right now. And, you know, one of the, uh, I believe that maybe one of the downfalls or pitfalls is that, uh, you know, uh, from what I, I'm just being honest, just here, it's just us this morning, all right? We're, we're no guests, no, it's just us, all right? Uh, this church has come to the brink of nearly disbanding and, 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 and turning this over to different folks and things like that. We've come to the brink and so uh, to have a uh, someone to come in and lead pastor this church, we may all just kind of relax. Well, somebody's here uh, to lead. Now, we can just relax now that, that we have somebody uh, that's in the pulpit that's regularly teaching and, and, and that is a misconception of what is in the future for this church. Because if you're going to get in just a relaxed position to be satisfied with just someone that will come in and open the Bible and, and teach the Word week after week, you're missing the point of what this place is and what it can be for the glory of God. I'm not saying that is your mindset, but it's an easy mindset to fall into. What is needed right now is every one of us being intentional and being urgent in the area of prayer for this church, this ministry, what can go on, what is going on in this place. And so uh, in the coming weeks, not necessarily maybe in December, I'll set aside a few to look at the nativity and to look at the birth of our Lord Jesus, but here shortly, we're going to spend more and more time in the subject of prayer, looking at prayer and the urgency of prayer, hopefully to kindle a fire for prayer. That's one thing I've always learned about prayer is that, is that prayer ebbs and flows uh, with, the, with the poking at it. You know what I'm saying? If a, if a fire sits and, and, and slowly, you ever watched a campfire, it'll slowly burn out and get low. Uh, but if you take something and poke at it, if you stir it up, if you, if you add some fuel to it, it reignites itself. And oftentimes when it comes to our prayer lives, it is something that needs to be poked at, prodded, and reignited uh, into a flame. And so that's what I, I, my prayer is, not only for you, but for me as well. As I want to be more earnest and more decisive and more intentional about my prayer life for this place and what God can do here. And I believe a good starting point is in Colossians chapter number 1 and verse 9 through 11. 
the Colossian letter, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. We'll get into that here in a moment. Uh, but I want us to look at the prayer that he is praying for them. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse number 9. Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and he says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So, here's the Apostle Paul. Since he heard about the church at Colossae, he is praying for this church. If you'll study the background, Colossae is in a church in dire straits. Not necessarily uh, from membership and from falling off, but from some false teaching that made its way in there, looking to basically decimate and split the church into false doctrine. But he is praying for this people. And what is he praying for? As he continues in verse number 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here he's continuing, this is what I'm praying for, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I want to again talk to you and I want us to look at this prayer and I want us to focus on how we can take this prayer and apply it to our lives and use this prayer. Using this prayer may sound a little, a little awkward, but it's something that has actually been much of a tradition in the Christian church. In 1662, uh, during the late Reformation age, and particularly the dawning of it in England, the Church of England published a book that had a great impact on church history. The name of the book is The Book of Common Prayer. How many of you have ever heard of The Book of Common Prayer? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, not many of you at all. Uh, any of you have heard of that book. One of the reasons why, you know, there's a, there's a liturgical stripe of the church that uses a lot of liturgy and formality that will draw constantly from that book. Well, we kind of come from a different vantage point, uh, a different uh, uh, stream, so to speak, of church life. And so this uh, book of common prayer may not be that familiar to all of us, but to be honest with you, I believe it impacts you more than you know because the book of common prayer has impacted our culture as a whole. Think of this way. This is a prayer from the book of common prayer. Listen very closely. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Can you smell the, can you smell the wedding flowers and the cake right now? That, that's, that's what that's from. Uh, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and His church. Now, that is a, a prayer taken directly from the book of common prayer. You wouldn't know it, but you know that prayer from the many weddings that you have attended. Uh, uh, so this book has had an impact on, on the church at large. And this book, the book of common prayer, is filled with other prayers of approaches to God in prayer. You know, down through the centuries, many believers have looked to books uh, for guidance in praying, like the Book of Common Prayer. Now, through my years of following the Lord, I've never purposefully sought out 
the book of common prayer to aid me in my own praying, but many people do. And I don't fault them for that. I don't fault them for looking at other books. Matter of fact, in our message, I'm going to tell you one of the books that I look to oftentimes in prayer and in, in, in what I pray to God. But uh, I don't blame people for doing that because sometimes you don't know how to approach God, what to say to God in prayer. I don't know. I believe that many of you have in various stages of your Christian life, probably many of you have been a Christian for a long time. And some of us have not been as Christian, a Christian as a long time. And one of the things is actually needs to be taught and person discipled in is how to pray, what to pray. I was discipled in prayer by using a little acronym called ACTS, A-C-T-S. And, and A means adoration. When you pray, you come to God and adore Him and praise Him. Then you go into A-C. C is for confession. You confess your sins, your faults. T is you thank God. Thank Him for the things that have given you. And S is supplication. You give your needs to God. You give others needs and pray for others' needs to God. That's a good rule of thumb when learning to pray, but I can see how people would go to books like the Common Book of Common Prayer for that help. But if there is another book that could be called the greatest book of prayer of all, it would be the Bible. Now, the Bible is not solely a book of prayers, but there are prayers in the book that give us a Holy Spirit-inspired pattern to pray. What the Apostle Paul writes here gives us a pattern for prayer. The Apostle Paul, when at this time in Colossians, in the book, when he writes the letter to the church, Colossian church, he's in prison, writing the, to this church, a church that he has never been to. You realize the Apostle Paul never set foot in the church of Colossae. He did not know any, hardly any of the congregation. Matter of fact, the when I studied the book of Colossians and went through it verse by verse, it, it seems to indicate that that the person who is uh, who has brought the news of the church of Colossae to the Apostle Paul was not necessarily somebody Paul led to the Lord, but he was a disciple of someone that Paul had left to the, had led to the Lord. So this is a guy coming to Paul he doesn't know and praying for a people that he doesn't know. And so, and, and in writing to them, he tells them how he has been praying for them. Now, if the Apostle Paul is praying this prayer for people he don't know and a church he doesn't know, how much more should we pray it for ourselves, who we do know, and the people we know? You see what I'm saying? This is a pattern that we can follow. He's praying for a Christ-believing people who un, are under the assault of a Christ-rejecting world. And boy, that's where we are, aren't we? A Christ-believing people under the assault of a Christ-rejecting world. And so this is a prayer that we should not only pray for ourselves, but pray for one another. And I want us to look at this prayer and realize what we should be seeking God for. In the days to come, as we petition God, as we ask God to move and work in this church, what should I pray for you and what should you pray for me? And what should you pray for yourself and I pray for myself and my family? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul goes into that. I want to give you three critical reasons why we should pray this prayer for our lives. Number one, 
I want you to see that we should pray this prayer because we to realize God's purpose for our lives. Go back to verse number 9. He said, from the first day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be, no, first of all, filled with the filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I've, met a, I've been a part of jail ministry most of my uh, time since I was called to preach. I've been in and, and not, not in and out of jail, but in and out of jails to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with people in, in jail. And oftentimes, they'll come to you after the service, after you're done preaching, and they'll come pat you on the back and say, man, that was a good message. Please pray for me. Pray for my Lord. Pray that I get out. Pray that the pray that the evidence will come in. Pray for mercy for me in the court. They'll, they'll ask me to pray for them. But there have been I don't I don't I can't tell you I could count on maybe three fingers the number of times that a prison inmate has come to me and said, "What can I pray for you about?" The Apostle Paul is a different kind of inmate, so to speak. He he's not a common criminal. He's a He's a committed Christian. And so while he's in prison for his faith, Paul probably did more for the expansion of the kingdom of God and the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the letters that he wrote and the prayers that he prayed. Listen, the Apostle Paul, you know, we're reading today a prison letter of the Apostle Paul. He wrote this while in prison. This has impacted the church down through the centuries more so than his active labor at the church of Corinth or at the church of Ephesus where he did pastor and did lead and was active there. This letter that he wrote from prison has more of an impact than what he did. So but God did more through Paul in prison than he did outside of prison. Paul was indeed a great scholar, a, a great theologian. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers, uh, Jewish teachers of his time. He was the best in, had the best in theological training and give, he was even given the spiritual inspiration to write the Bible. I mean, you talk about a man that's on the top shelf as far as spirituality is concerned and God's usage is concerned. And yet at the same time, the apostle Paul was a man dependent upon prayer. And what was his first request for the believers at Colossae? To know the will of God, the purpose of God for their lives. Notice, first of all, we see an acquisition of spiritual truth. He prayed for them to be filled with knowledge. Go back to verse number 9. He said, I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Filled with the knowledge. That word filled there is the same word that is used in Ephesians 5.18 to speak of the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know where it says, be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, that same filled with the Spirit is the same word filled with the knowledge of God. Now, I don't know what your teaching has been about the being filled with the Spirit of God, but being filled with the Spirit of God, not being conked on the head and talking in different tongues and doing all kinds of strange things. But to be filled with the Spirit of God means to be controlled by, influenced by, led by. Just like the example has always been given to me is the Christian life is like a glove and the Holy Spirit filling that glove and moving that glove is, is what that 
filling of the Spirit is like to be controlled by the Spirit, to be led, guided by the Spirit. Here, the Apostle Paul uses the same language concerning the will of God. Do you know that God's will for our lives is not like some elusive white rabbit that Alice went constantly was chasing after and never truly getting a hold of, never grasping? No. No. Paul is praying that they would know the will of God, that spiritual truth for their lives so well that it would possess them, that it would control their actions and their lives. God wants them to know His purposes for their lives. And I might add, He he wants you to know what His purpose is for your life. I, throughout all of my ministry, have always taught that there are two aspects of the will of God. There is the prescribed will of God. You look in the New Testament, there are several places where the author will say, This is the will of God concerning you. I think it's in Thessalonians. It says, this is the will of God that ye be thankful. Thankful. Thankfulness is part of the will of God for your life. That is a prescribed, written down will of God. Then there's the personal will of God. The personal. Uh, Am I I supposed to be a missionary? Am I a preacher? Am I an evangelist? Am I a Sunday school teacher? Am I supposed to sing? Am I supposed to do this or that? These uh, these real down-to-earth, rubber-meets-the-road things for your life. How are you going to serve God? There's the prescribed will, and then there's the personal will. I'm sorry, but if you read the Bible, it's not going to say somewhere in there, uh, uh, Brother Jerome, you're supposed to be a preacher. It's not, it's not going to be there. It's not in there. It's not, it's not going to specifically say that to you. It's a personal will of God. But here's my teaching. Here's what I've always been taught. And what I've always understood, if you'll do your best to fulfill the prescribed will of God, you can't help but fall into the personal will of God. You can't miss it. You won't miss it. If you'll do the prescribed, God will lead you into that personal will of God. Our problem is, when it comes to the will of God, is that we want to know the ins and outs of God's will beforehand, before we agree to do the will of God. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, you're, you're scared to death. You're scared to death. Well, if I, if I throw in with the will of God, he's going to send me to Africa and I'm going to be eating monkey meat the rest of my life. Well, the truth of the matter is, God had made you to where monkey meat tastes like creme de la creme to you. It's the, it's the greatest thing you've ever had in your mouth. You see, what we want to know on the front end what God wants me to do so we can say, I don't think so. I think I'll do something else. No, the way the will of God works personally for you is to take out a blank sheet of paper, sign your name to the bottom and say, God, fill it up with whatever you want to do. Because you know what he's going to put on that page? Exactly what you were created for. Exactly what would bring joy to your life and fulfillment in your purpose. You see, you see, God's plans is what He's created us for. And so the will of God is a spiritual truth that God wants you to know. God's not playing peekaboo with you. He's not the white rabbit you're just supposed to chase and chase and chase. No. He wants you to know the will of God more than you want to know it. 
wants to reveal it to. Notice second of all, not the acquisition of spiritual truth, but the apprehension of spiritual truth. Notice in our text, he said, knowledge of his will. Notice this, in all spiritual wisdom. Now, wisdom is the apprehension of spiritual truth. The acquisition is to know the will of God. The apprehension is the wisdom of God. You see, it's one thing to gather facts out of the Bible, a list of a bunch of do's and don'ts, and memorize a bunch of verses, but it's quite another thing to apprehend those facts. You see, to, to a lost man, he can take the Bible and he can find out every place in the New Testament where the word grace is mentioned. And he can write all those out. And he can try to memorize them. He can acquire facts about the New Testament and facts about the Bible. But wisdom is able to apprehend the Bible as seen as God sees it. That's what wisdom is. Biblical wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective, a, a godly perspective. And so to see them as God has revealed them, that's godly wisdom. It's the difference between sitting with a Bible at your desk in a notepad and reading the Bible and writing some things down then, as opposed to standing with a Bible open in front of a blood-stained cross. You see, it's the difference between dry, forensic knowledge of the Bible and intimate understanding of what God has revealed in His Word. Those are two different things. An academic knowledge and an inspired type, not in the, count, not in the way of the Scriptures, but a, an enlightened understanding of God's Word, which He gives the capability of that. You say, Brother Ronnie, I'm not that enlightened. I, I don't know that much spiritually. Oh, listen, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you welcomed in a teacher that sets in your heart that takes this book and makes it alive and speaks to you through it. Not in an academic way, but in a devotional, personal wisdom, divine wisdom that God gives us upon knowing Him. The apprehension of spiritual truth. That's wisdom. And then also the application of spiritual truth. Notice he goes on to say, uh, feel, uh, it says, pray for you that you be filled with the knowledge of His will, to know His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We can communitively put that word spiritual, express that word spiritual understanding. So it's interesting to note that this word understanding here carries the idea of being able to put it all together and relate it to life. That word understanding is not only to know something, and to have wisdom in it. And not only to know the will of God, but to wrap that up together, to bind it together, and put shoe leather on and live. Understanding takes what we devotionally find from the Word of God, combines it with the will of God, and puts shoe leather on it so that we can live it out. So it has a binding aspect of it. George W. Tritt, the great preacher, put it well, and I've said it over and over in my lifetime, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge, but to do the will of God is the greatest achievement. That's what this understanding is. Do it. Live it out. Not just to know it, 
Not just to end it at the coffee table in the morning when God speaks to your heart, but take it and live it out. Carry it in and on your Christian life. It's a spiritual understanding. Paul is saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the truth of God, understanding its serious spiritual impact, and then I want you to go out and live it out, carry it out, put it on shoe leather. The church at Colossae, here's what, here's what, here's why he's honing in on this. The church at Colossae was filled with a people called Gnostics. Gnostic, Gnosis meaning knowledge. Gnostics meaning a person that has special knowledge. Here's the Gnostics. They said this, we've got the secret. Have you heard this kind of talk before in spiritual circles? We've got the secret. We've got the special understanding. We are the only ones that are in the know. We have a special knowledge. When in reality, God wanted them to know that there is no special secret on the shelf. You know, that's what the Gnostics say. They're on the upper level. They're on the high shelf. You're not down there yet. I can, I'm the one that can tell you what's on the high shelf. But that's not what Paul is saying. I'm praying that, that you, that, listen, the will of God is not on a high shelf. It's on the regular shelf. It's on the low shelf. It's accessible to everyone. There's not special secrets of spirituality. If someone comes to you telling you, oh, we've got the special insight. We've got the special secret. Listen, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Amen? Listen, it's not on a high shelf. It's on the shelf accessible to everyone. Paul's saying to a people he's never met, I want you to know the will of God. It's accessible. You don't need me to find the will of God. We, they didn't even need the special apostle Paul to find the will of God. God says, no, it's accessible to you. You can know the will of God. You can have the will of God. You can know that special knowledge and you can live it out. You see, God wanted them to know His will. He wants you to know your purpose for life. The question is, are you seeking for it? Are you asking for it? Are you asking to know that purpose? Are you realizing that purpose for your life? Our prayer for each other and ourselves is to know the purpose and the will of God for our lives. And so getting back to us this morning, us gathered in here together, after what you've been through this past year and, I, and, and me coming in here the last few months, I, I'm wondering, are, are you just kind of taking a sigh and say, well, someone's in control? Or, or could we be doing this, God? What is your will for Faith Community Church? I'm not talking about generically the church as a whole worldwide. We know it's to reach, to, to glorify God, to reach the world with the gospel. God, what do you want for this church? What's my part in this body? What do you want us to do? We want to know you will. We want to put shoe leather on it and do it and live it. God, what is it? That's what Paul said. I'm asking that for you. That's what we ought to be asking for ourselves. What we ought to be asking on the behalf of this church to realize the purpose for our, God's purpose for our lives. Second of all, this prayer is vitally important to reveal God's pleasure in our lives. Look at verse number 10. 
so as to walk in a manner of the Lord, a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, one of the most wonderful things about this prayer itself is that it builds on itself. What is the ultimate end of the knowledge and doing the will of God? Does it, is it end in just ourselves some satisfaction and saying, I did the will of God? No. It is the pleasure of God. He says, I want you to know the will of God. I want you to do the will of God. I want you to have it and, and be filled and controlled with it. Why? Not to satisfy yourself, but to please God. We who have been saved are a people who should seek no greater purpose than the delight of the one who did so much for us. Our goal is to bring the pleasure to God, to bring pleasure to God, to have the delight of God on our lives. Notice, first of all, a life pleasing to God. In 10a, he talks about pleasing. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. This word pleasing here appears only in this one location in the entire New Testament. So it's very difficult. A lot of times in studying the Bible, you can look at a Greek word and see how it's translated throughout the Scriptures to get a better sense of maybe its usage in a particular passage. But we can't do that here. It's only used one time. So what does this word say to us? Well, the... Uh, the, the proper Greek, in the classical Greek, this word pleasing was a derogatory term. It was a negative term. It describes someone who sneaks or slinks about uh, anxious to do whatever is necessary to please someone else. But here, here Paul, in verse number 10, he takes this word, he sanctifies it, and makes it a beautiful thing. The Christian life is lived to its best when it's lived to please and to show pleasure to the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. We spent so much, we spend, you know, we spend so much time in our lives trying to please who? Trying to please Paul? Trying to please co-workers, trying to please neighbors, friends, our spouse, our children, trying to please all these different people, all of which in the end of life will not matter to a hill of beans next to the voice of Jesus saying, Thou good, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We try to spend, we try to please so many people and neglect the one whose pleasure will be at the end of our lives as a whole. You know, one theological debate that's been bantered back and forth in my hearing lately is having to do with pleasing God. There are some that would suggest that really we can't please God. Because ultimately, the pleasure of God is ultimately found in one thing, the death of His Son Jesus on the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. So, so you can you 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 can't really please God because it it doesn't even compare to what His Son did on the cross. You don't have anything that you can please God with. And there's some now there's some merit to that argument because there are a lot of people that think 
because of what I do, I merit some sort of special standing before God. And the more I work, the better my standing is. And that's not the case at all. And so I would say, well, when it comes to that kind of attitude, that's not how it works. And you're right. You can't please God to merit a greater status. But in reality, we do. We know by this verse right here, we can please God. We can bring pleasure to God by our lives and the conduct and labor of our lives in the will of God. We can bring pleasure to God. On several occasions during the life of the Lord Jesus, the Father in heaven, He declared openly before this world, He said, I, I, He declared that He was well pleased in His Son. Do you remember that at the baptism, different times in Jesus' life at the Mount of Transfiguration? I am well pleased with His Son. Now, the life of Jesus was well pleasing to the Father like the Sistine Chapel, you know the Sistine Chapel, the, the, the ceiling of this chapel that Michelangelo painted those beautiful pictures of the Bible scenes on that chapel. It's a work of unimaginable beauty, okay? So the life of Jesus was well-pleasing to the Father like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is well-pleasing to the eye of the greatest art critic or the art or the artist himself. It is well-pleasing. It's staggering. It's beyond beautiful. It's expertise. It's color. It's magnificent. It is well-pleasing. But the value of this painting right here, or etching, or chalking, or finger painting, is no less prized by me than I would the Sistine Chapel. Why? Because I love the hand that drew it. Amen. The hand that drew it. That's what makes all the difference. Now, it's, I know you have Hang on, hang on. Listen. It's not artistically, maybe not have the right proportion. The color mixing may be a little bit over, off, artistically and skill-wise, it may not be the best. But to the heart of this Father, it's just as beautiful as the Sistine Chapel. Why? Because I love the one that drew it. Hey, the ple listen to this. The pleasure of God from your life is not found in your expertise. It's not found in how much labor that you do or what you do or how high your achievements are. The pleasure of God for your life is that you're doing it. You seek. You, you put shoe leather on it and do it. No matter. No matter if it looks like a, like a coloring book or it, it, or it, or it doesn't even come close to assisting chapel life like the so-called, so-called spiritual leaders of the land, the great mighty ministers that have seemingly done so much for the kingdom of God. God does not love them anymore. God is not more pleased in them than He is you. When you do the will of God for your life. That may not be to reach the world. You may not be Billy Graham. 
You may not be a great evangelist, a great pastor, a great missionary. You may not be, you may not lead scores and scores and scores to Jesus Christ. You may not uh, be able to write great theological books that will, that will help and encourage the church throughout the world. Yet at the same time, God is no less pleased by your labor. Why? Not because of the, not because of the dry functional things that you've done, but because He loves you. He loves you. And He has that purpose for your life. A life that is pleasing, second of all, a life that is productive. A life that is productive. Notice in verse number uh, 10, to walk worthy of a manner, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Notice this. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. When God saves us, His intent for our lives is to not only be pleasing to Him like the fragrance of an orchid, but to be productive like a fruitful orchard. We're not only to be an aroma of praise and beauty to our Lord fulfilling what He's done for us, but also to produce fruit. Jesus made that plain. John 15, 8, This is my thought, this is my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before Him that we should walk therein. That word workmanship there is the same word, Greek word, we get our word poem. You are the song of God to produce good works. You are the to bear much fruit. One preacher said this, and I, I, I say this with caution, but with earnestness. Listen closely. A Christian life that shows no fruit of the Spirit and bears no fruit for the kingdom will never be a life that pleases the Lord. Now, His pleasure may be seen in the fact that He saved you, and thus He sees you in His Son. And there is an inherent pleasure in that position in Christ. But as servants, remember there's twofold. We are sons and servants. We are sons in the fact that we're already part of the family. We are servants in the fact that there is a judgment seat of Christ. It is a, it is a, it is a teaching that is intertwined in the New Testament. You can't get away from the stewardship of the life of a believer. And in doing so, if we do not produce the fruit of the Spirit, which should come naturally from faith in Jesus Christ, or uh, the, the produce the fruit of, of, of fruit for the kingdom of God in the, in the way we serve the Lord in the local church and, and fulfill His will in the local church, uh, then we have every reason to question if our life pleases the Lord. Matthew 21, 19, Jesus cursed a fig tree that had only leaves but no fruit. Years ago, I preached a message preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and, and I titled the message, Not Just a Bad Day. A lot of people think that when Jesus went into Jerusalem that last week of His life, and He, he went to the fig tree and there was no fruit, He got frustrated and mad and cursed the fig tree, and it, it just basically withered up and died within 24 hours. It's not just that Jesus had a bad day. What was happening was that the tree had every indication from the outside to have early season fruit. And when Jesus went to inspect and lifted up the leaves, there was no fruit to be found. That's a lot of church members. They got a lot of nice foliage. 
They look like they're early bloomers and early producers, but with a little bit of Holy Spirit inspection, a little bit of lifting up the leaves by the, by the difficulties and problems of life or the Word of God itself, we find that there's no fruit there to begin with. You see, we are to be a people that are fruitful people. I wonder how many Christians have a lot of foliage and no fruit. Does that picture your life? You look good on the outside, but a little bit of inspection will find a lack of fruit. You know, fruit is produced without strength. How many of you have ever seen an apple tree go, I'm producing apples, stand back. They don't. You know why? Because it's natural. But they do. They don't, they don't, they don't toil. You know who does toil? Who does labor? To make fruit happen, it's the gardener. The gardener's the one that labors, toils, sweats over his crops to make a good crop. Listen, is God working in your life? Because if you're straining to try to produce fruit, hey man, you're doing it wrong. Fruit comes by the work of the gardener. Jesus said, John 15, my father is the husbandman or the gardener. He's the one that works in our lives. He's the one that's responsible for fruit. I'm to sit here and to focus on Him and He'll make the fruit in my life. That's where we come to the... And and what is fruit? You know, uh, preachers can be so generic. What is fruit? Brother Ronnie, what is fruit? Are you talking about me making apples? Let's, let's, uh, what, what are you talking about spiritually? What is fruit? Well, what is fruit? Fruit, fruit in the Bible uh, could be a fruit of an understanding more of God. A deeper devotion and love of God. A a, a pursuit of God in the will of life. Constantly being refocused on what God's will for my life is. Acts of service, words of witness, uh, uh, changes in my personal demeanor and attitude towards those around me. That is fruit. Listen, I've not arrived in the Christian life anymore, but I'm telling you what, I'm more... I'm a little bit different than I was 10, 15 years ago. I'm a whole lot different than I was when He saved me. And I I don't think I've nearly got as far as I really should have in the many years I've been saved. But the reality is I'm not what I was before. That's fruit. Are you producing fruit? Is there fruit? I'm not talking about how much you do. I'm not talking about how much you, how much this, but is there fruit? Is God working in your life? What is God doing in your life? Notice also a life of pursuing. He said in verse number 10, So walk manner worthy of fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and pleasing in the knowledge of God. Pleasing, excuse me, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In this previous verse, Paul prayed for an increase in knowledge in the will of God. But this reference is to a different knowledge. He is praying for an increase in the knowledge of the wonder of God of who God is, to know God more personally, more intimately. You see, the good deeds that are wrought from your life and of mine are the result of an intimate walk with God. Effective work for God is the act not of us working for God, but the act of working of God working through us. That's the whole idea of the Christian life. God worked through me. Philippians talks about for him the will to will and to do through us his good pleasure. 
You're in extinction. Paul talks about in Corinthians uh, that the parts of the church, some of the hands, some of the thumbs, some of the feet, some of the sightly and unsightly parts, we're all a part of the the body. And Christ is the head. And so God in Christ working through the church is Him working through us and using us. Philippians 3.10, the Apostle Paul, who was the most productive Christian who ever lived, Yet what was his ultimate pursuit? Was it a thousand churches? Was it a million souls saved? No. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share His sufferings be made like Him in His death. That's what he's praying for them, that they would know God more. Because knowing God translates into a life that is fulfilling the will of God. Not the other way around. Doing the will of God doesn't mean that you'll get to know God more. Doing the will of God without knowing God will wear you into the ground. Will break you. Will cause you to throw up your hands and quit. But knowing Him translates into that growth. That fruit that is produced without without earnest effort. I'm not talking about the sacrifice of time. But I am talking about that toil. It is the overflow of knowing Him. Last of all, to retain God's power in our lives. You may be saying to yourself, well, that's all fine and good. I I want to know the purpose of God's will for my life. I want to please God with my life, but I just don't have the ability to do this. Look with me in verse number 11. This verse has got you covered. If that's what you're thinking, I can't do this. The verse has got you covered. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, Trying to live the Christian life is impossible by the means of our own power. We need something outside of ourselves. We need a power that comes from God. My mind has been preoccupied with uh, Mark chapter number 9. There was a saying, Jesus, Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration in the valley. A father brings a son to the disciples and they're wanting them to heal the son. He throws himself in the fire. He's demon-possessed. And they, they try. They try to cast out the demon. They, they try to follow all their recipes that they've done in the past. Jesus has sent them out before to cast out demons and they had done that before. This is old hat for them. They should be able to do this. They place their hands. They pray. They do this. But yet they could not cast out the demon. Jesus comes down from the mountain, asks a few questions, and then He casts out the demon. And and uh, uh, the, the disciples a little later on come and him, say, hey, how come we couldn't cast out the demon? Jesus' response to them, this kind comes only by prayer. They were looking for something within themselves to cast out the demon, when in reality they needed something outside of themselves. That's what you and I need. We need a power outside of ourselves. Like I said before, if you try to do the will of God without, without that vital connection to God, devotionally, drawing from Him, you'll run yourself into the ground. We need something outside of ourselves. Faith Community Church needs something outside of ourselves. We need a miracle. We need God to come down. We need God to have His way in this place. We need God to do things that we, not, we can't even imagine, we can't even think about. We need something outside of ourselves. Not what we have, but something outside of ourselves. And that's what he's talking about. That's what he, he's telling them that he's praying for them. And we ought to pray for each other. We ought to pray for ourselves. A power that is outside of ourselves. Notice the sufficient power. Notice the word all here in our text. In verse number 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The apostle Paul here is praying 
for a sufficient power to meet whatever the demands they may be they may face. Paul wanted them to know the will of God for them and to be busy doing that will. But he did not deny the need for power, for enablement from God equal to the task. Years ago, Carrie and I were watching a TV show about a woman who had a severe, a severe eating disorder. And she tried dieting and she tried surgeries, the belly band thing and all kinds of things to lose no weight to no avail. And she, she watched, and, and we, I watched that TV show as she cried to her doctor and she said this, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. How many times as a believer have I seen, as a pastor, seen other people that have, that have nearly been in tears and said, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I can't live this Christian life. I don't have the strength to face the task. But in reality, this cry need not ever be uttered. Why? Because from Paul's prayer, we know that whatever the challenge is that we face, there is power to finish. There's power equal to the encounter. I love what Guy King said. In commenting on these verses, he said this. Listen very closely. It's a brief statement, but it's powerful. Listen closely. In other words, if I know I ought, O-U-G-H-T, if I know I ought, I then know I can. God will never ask, listen to me, God will never ask you to do anything in this book that you cannot by His power accomplish. God doesn't ask you to move mountains in your own spiritual strength. He says we can move mountains through His power, His strength, His enablement. The Apostle Paul made that clear in that coffee cup verse that so many have on their wall. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's His strength, not mine. We sing it this way, and I love this old hymn. It goes this way. Listen very closely. In every condition, in sickness and health, in poverty's veil, abounding in wealth, at home or abroad, on the land, on the sea, as thy days may demand, so thy strength ever be. Whatever we encounter in life, there is strength to surpass it. Whatever obstacle stands in the way of our accomplishment and pursuance of the will of God, there is strength to accomplish it and overcome it by the power of God. Sufficient power, supernatural power, according to His glorious might. He did not say out of His might, but according to His might. We run into this in the teaching of Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply all... No, must God supply every need of yours according to His riches in Christ Jesus. The supply is in proportion to the supplier, not the necessity of the need. The same truth is here. One author beautifully illustrates it this way. Imagine your car battery dies and you, you call me to help you. And if I show up and I lift up the hood and rather than hooking the jumper cables up to the uh, to the to the one, the battery in my truck, I put the jumper cables on the watch in my battery, my battery watch. And I try to get you to crank the car with my, with those jumper cables on my watch battery. It's not up to the task. It cannot do it. The difference in your own abilities and the supernatural abilities of God is the difference between the energy stored in that watch battery and the energy that's in a nuclear power plant. The power we need to accomplish what God wants for Faith Community Church is not in ourselves. 
in a power outside of us and in a supernatural power. Awe-inspiring power. A power that causes us all to stand back and say, look what God has done. Not because of a preacher, not because of the right organization, not because uh, we have done any particular thing, but God has brought supernatural power into this place. As a Christian, you gave up your dependence, independence on the day you surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. You are tasked now with a life of dependence upon Jesus for sustaining power you must have to live out God's purposes for His life. And if we're going to be the church that God has purposed and called us to be, we got to have that power. Not our power. That's why the focus in these coming days will be upon our petition and our prayer to God. We need a miracle. We need God to do only what He can do. And we know that He can do that if we ask. If we will ask. If we will ask and it's according to His will. Do you think it's God's will that He would cause this place to grow? That He would cause sinners to be saved? That He caused revival to come in among? I believe it is. I believe God wants to do that more in this place than we want Him to do that. And so if that be the case, then all we need to do is but petition and ask and plead. I know there's precautions in prayer. There's other things that get in the way. I understand that. There's things that block prayer. And we'll get to that. But in the reality right now, let us have a heart of simplicity to petition God to do what only He can do, to follow what we see laid out from the Apostle Paul. Sufficient prayer, supernatural prayer, also sustaining prayer. He said in verse number 11, being strengthened with all might, with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. This supplied power was not to deliver them from their difficulty, but for them to endure their difficulty. You see, the power to sustain, the word patience here in verse 11 speaks of the ability to stand in the midst of trial, a patience with problems. The word endurance speaks of the ability to endure hardships that might come from others, uh, from outside of ourselves and around us. It's an enduring or putting up with people. This power that God gives us is not to command the winds and the waves, but to command our wants and our whims. This power is not for us to walk on the water. This power is for us to walk through the storm. That's what He's promising here. A power to endure with patience. Awaiting on God. This power given to us is what some people call that Christian stickability. It's a made up word. Stickability. The power to keep on keeping on. That's what we need. That's what we're going to need over the next year, two years, three years. We're going to need a stickability. We're going to need that, that stickability of that woman that Jesus told that parable. He petitioned, she petitioned that judge again and again to right her wrong to do what she asked. And He did that not because He liked her, not because He found her favorable argument, but to get her off His back. A constant petition. How much more so our Heavenly Father 
will attend the constant petition of our people. I was listening to a tape this week by a beloved preacher uh, that I've listened to in the past and he said something quoting another minister. There is nothing that lies outside the realm of prayer that, that does not lay outside the will of God. If it's the will of God that men be saved, we have every right to pray for people to be saved. If it's the will of God that His kingdom expand by the changing of life, we have every right and, and trust and belief that God would answer a prayer from us that God grow His church. God do what only you can. Save souls. Change me. Make me more to know Your will and do Your will. Several years ago, I was introduced to a book of prayers that I found to be immensely helpful in my devotional prayer life. It's called Valley of Vision. I would encourage you to go get a copy of it. Just to have it around and to read it. Maybe daily read it. It's not Scripture, but yet most of what's in there and the way it's worded, you could put chapter and verse next to it. And it's often helped and guided me in my prayer. For example, this one here, I believe, this prayer echoes Paul's prayer that we just went over. Blessed God, when I desire worldly possessions, help me to be rich toward Thee. When the vanities of the world ensnare me, let me not plunge into new guilt and ruin. May I remember the dignity of my spiritual release. Never be too busy to attend to my soul. Never be too engrossed with time that I neglect the things of eternity. Thus, may I not only live, but grow towards Thee. May I seek after an incense of divine love to Thee, after unreserved resignation to Thy will, after extensive benevolence to my fellow creatures, after patience and fortitude of soul, after a heavenly disposition, after a concern that I may please Thee in public and private. Draw on my soul the lamentations, uh, the, the, the lament, the alignments of Christ in every trace and feature of which thou wilt take delight, for I am thy workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Thy letter written with the Holy Spirit's pen, thy tilled soil ready for the sowing and then harvest. Man, there's so much in that prayer that just just goes right along with what we what we just took from the Scripture. Listen, whether you pray that prayer from Valley of Vision or whether you pray the inspired prayer of the Apostle Paul, just pray. Just call on God. Just ask God, I want, I want knowledge into Your will. I want to know what You want me to do. I need Your power. I need Your leadership. I want to please you, God. Help me to please you, whatever it is. Pray. Set yourself to prayer. Set yourself to prayer. Let the fear of these doors closing and Ichabod written across the front, let that fear of this place folding and being done away with and turning into a business on the side of the road, let that fear drive you to your knees and say, oh God, we can't do this. We don't have not the power. That's what happened to Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 2. It was the fear of the enemies that were upon him 
that drove him to his knees. We don't have the power to face this enemy. But God, our eyes are upon you. Let the fear of that happening to this place drive you to your knees. Call upon God to do what only He can. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. We'll come to a moment of invitation again. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is very pastoral. As we're meeting once a week and, and we'll be for a, an extended period of time, I don't know when we'll do different things, but as of right now, there are times I felt like this Sunday I just needed, needed, really needed to be pastoral. I really needed to talk to you earnestly about what we're doing, where we're going. Let's not lean back and say, well, we have a leader and everything's fine. Somebody's preaching, somebody's singing, and that's enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. We want to fulfill God's purpose in this place. We want to see God do great things. Page number one, uh, let's see, 107, I must tell Jesus. 107, Brother Roger, go ahead. I must tell Jesus. Just a couple of verses. Uh, it's in your hymn book there. I must tell Jesus.